It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie the 14th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. This week a scandal in how Irish hospitals have been retaining and disposing of human organs has come to the fore once again. Last year the parents of 18 babies born at Cork University Maternity Hospital were informed that their child's organs were sent to Belgium and incinerated without their knowledge or their consent. This happened on two occasions between March and April of 2020. And the bereaved parents had believed that the organs of their babies who had been subject to autopsy would be cremated or buried in a sensitive and dignified manner and that they would be contacted before this happened. As we now know, none of that happened. A review of hospital policies in Cork did happen in line with a HSE internal audit of all public hospitals. That audit, shook, according to media reports, reveals that the inappropriate disposal of organs was still in use at that time at University Hospital Limerick and Our Lady of Lourdes in Drogheda. Incredibly, the same month that the uh, audit got underway, or the review got underway into the scandal at Cork University Maternity Hospital, the organs of two babies born in University Hospital Limerick were sent for incineration again to Belgium. Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald was putting these points to the Taoiseach in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Micheál Martin made it clear that government is not happy about how hospitals have dealt with organs and how in Limerick and the Lourdes in Drogheda they had been incinerating organs up until last year. This is unacceptable. The HSE itself did the audit. Uh, at least I take something from that in that they did a robust audit themselves and have revealed the latest incidents in relation to Limerick and um, Drada and so forth uh, and hospitals. Uh, that should be published without delay in my view. That's the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Let's uh, discuss this now with Fine Gael's spokesperson on health, Colin Burke, who joins us together with Sinn Féin TD for Louth and Eastmead, Rory O'Murakou, and you're both very welcome to the programme. Colin Burke, uh, I think the Taoiseach put it very well in the Dáil yesterday when he said all of this is difficult to comprehend. 
Absolutely. I think it's a really difficult time for families who've lost um, a child or any uh, bereaved family. And I think uh, my sympathies go out to them that this matter is coming back again. Um, and I think it's inappropriate um, that this should have happened. Um, the you know the uh, HSE carried out an audit of 25 HSE facilities. They identified that there was impractical administrative processes um, specified for mortuary staff, and that there were two hospitals in particular where um, organ disposal methods at, at um, two hospitals, University Hospital Limerick and Our Lady of Hospitals in Drade were not appropriate. And I think it's important now that there's a full review to be carried out. The um, post-mortem examination services 2012 is in place that it, that's now being reviewed and the review must be completed by uh, December of this year. So it's important that it's fine having regulation and um, recommendations what should be done but it's important that there's um, that the, the mechanisms that are there can be implemented and that they're followed um, to the letter of the law. Incidentally, um, can, I, can I ask you, are you basing your comments based on media reports? Uh, the Irish Examiner got sight of uh, the audit, uh, RTA got sight of the audit, uh, and I think most people are, are going off those media reports. And if that's the case, uh, when is this audit going to be published? Well, the audit in relation to, um, my understanding in relation to um, Cork is still going through, um, I understand it's, it's, um, there's legal uh, consultation occurring and then the, the view is that this is in relation to Cork that it would be released to, to the families and I think it's important that there's full transparency in all of this mat- on all of these matters. I think it's important. There are six recommendations in relation to the uh, the post-mortem examination service group has been uh, set up. Um, it's under the chair of Dr. Linda Mulligan and she that report must be completed by December 2022. But the, the in relation to the report, in relation to the 18 families in Cork, mm-hmm. my understanding is that that's um, still um, being there's legal issues that are mm-hmm. arising that, mm-hmm. that need to be resolved. And I would hope that anything that's there, that there's full, there has to be full transparency mm-hmm. uh, for all the families involved because okay. they've gone through a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the HSE internal report, uh, which makes mention of the Lord's Hospital in Drogheda and Our Ladies Hospital in Navina as well. Yes. I mean, but, but I think there has to be full transparency on all of these matters. They, they need to be published because there's a very disturbing... I mean, what happened in Drogheda is disturbing because it happened so recently up to last year, but there's a very disturbing reference to Our Ladies Hospital in Navin, which was highlighted as yeah, involving... And I think one of the uh, things just, that just, happens, uh, what so, happens... Sorry, if I could just finish... Just, yeah. just, uh, sorry, Colin, uh, just to finish the point about Navin. Uh, it was highlighted, according to the Irish Examiner, as involving an outdoor element 300 metre in length on trolleys, not designed for outdoor transportation. Uh, this is a mortuary transfer practice in Navin. I'm not sure I even understand what that means, uh, but for people who have lost loved ones in recent years, all of this is very, very disturbing. Yes, it is. And I think one of the problems that's there is that, you know, who exactly is in charge in each location? Who is the final answer um, 
who is the uh, who is responsible, who is accountable. I think that's one of the problems that's there. And also, there's the whole issue about the connectivity between the hospitals and the uh, coroners as well. That issue needs to be resolved as well. So, you know, we we there's a disconnect in some areas uh, in dealing with. Um, in, re- in dealing with organ retention and all of these issues need to be resolved in a timely manner. Okay, uh, Rory O'Murku, uh, it was your party leader who raised this in the Dáil yesterday but we all woke up to the news about the local hospitals in Mead and Louth in the Irish Examiner yesterday and as I was saying to Colin Burke there, that'll be very disturbing for many of our listeners locally. Uh, what have you been hearing about what has happened in Drogheda and in Navan? Well, here, what I've been hearing is exactly what you're feeling at the minute, and that's that people are absolutely shocked to the degree they're looking for answers. Um, the Taoiseach said that there needs to be publication, and, and here, as your conversation earlier, I think it's fairly obvious. We need the, the, we need the report uh, in relation to what happened in Cork, obviously in relation to those families who lost the 18 babies and then were the, their pain was heaped upon with obviously what were absolutely disgraceful means of disposing of uh, children's uh, organs um, in an absolute breach of guidelines that I think have been in existence since 2012 by the HSE themselves. Um, Look, to hear that this is happening in UHL and in Our Lady of Lourdes in absolute recent times, Mm. combined with obviously other breaches of protocol as regards the moving of organs outside uh, in Navin Hospital. No, this is going to cause huge pain for people who have been through obviously a huge level of pain and bereavement. A mortuary transfer practice that ran for 300 metres. Part of it at least was outdoors uh, and not uh, a practice that was designed for outdoor transportation. I, I, I really would like to see what that means. Uh, I think we could only uh, decipher what it means by reading the report itself. Well, I, I think this is one of these cases where, unfortunately, we're all catching the piece of information indirectly from somebody who got sight mm. of the reports, and we haven't got them at this point in time. And if there is our legals that need to be done, they need to be done as soon as possible. As I say, if we talk specifically about those um, parents who lost uh, children in uh, CUMH, they need sight as quickly as possible because yeah, they're absolutely causing huge frustration <clears throat> and, and pain. In relation to yeah, everybody that's hearing these half pieces of story, we're all guessing what yeah. we think it is yeah. involved, but we do know that there has been retention beyond the guideline limit of a year of organs and the, the stuff in relation to the fact that organs will still be disposed of in this here I find it difficult to call it anything mm-hmm. other than disgraceful way um, in, in Drogheda and in Well in, this is something you know, that will really upset people I mean there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and what was yeah. um, Colin Burke It's not too hard to get shot these days yeah. but in fairness when we also heard about it, it's your uh, loved. two babies two, yeah. two babies organs mm-hmm. Uh, who were born in 2019 in UHL were also disposed of um, as the review was kicked off. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, like that, like you would always think, right, mistakes happen as mm. dreadful as they are, they shouldn't happen. And you would think a pause is put in relation to bad protocols that literally the system shuts down bad practices mm. and then we start better the next day, but it doesn't seem this happened. It also seems that there's a huge issue in relation to, again, it's a lack of resourcing 
there's obviously an element of workforce yeah. planning that hasn't happened. Okay, I'm just. I want to ask about spinning uh, because I think there's, yeah. a, there, there's probably a question about managing this story, uh, and uh, I think the HSE can be quite good at managing stories, and uh, I can be very cynical uh, about it working in this job over all of uh, the years that I have been. Colin Burke, uh, when uh, people try to manage or bodies try to manage a story, quite often what they do is they leak a story or part of the story show part of a report to media bodies like this and we get lines like this uh, where incineration took place in Drada up to last year or there was a mortuary transfer practice running for 300 metres in length on trolleys and some of that outdoors and it was inappropriate and then by the time we get sight of the report which could be in a month or a year from now we all go ah yeah that's not shocking because I heard about that last July well, I think this is a story you can't manage. Look, you know, the families involved have suffered a bereavement. It has been a really difficult time for them. And then for them to come back and have to revisit all of this again. So you can't hide a story like this. This is important that we do get the, the full and that there's full transparency in relation to the review that has occurred and that has, that's made available to the families. And I think the six recommendations that are made, I, rem, I um, referred earlier to the coroner relationship. Like, for instance, there is no timeline there in relation to when a coroner must carry out um, a, 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 the, you know, complete their work. There's, an, there's a number of issues that we need to tie down on this and that we need someone specifically in relation to organ retention in charge so there's a, a, you know, an identified mm. person because it's going between a number of different people, between pathologists, between sent away for further review uh, does it, and that's sometimes the reason, well we've, got, we've sent away um, a sample for to be reviewed and we're waiting for it to come back and then <clears throat> the report come back but there must be timelines put in all of this and that there is one person answerable to and that is, that is accountable for dealing with this well, there, there, this is the problem am, am I right am I right in thinking that um, nobody has done anything wrong here uh, that there just isn't a national policy, <coughs> national guidelines, uh, national protocol uh, on this, uh, and that that will come by way of the human tissue bill when that is published and uh, signed into law. But you see, the, the post-mortem examination services, you know, there there's six recommendations there that would be a review of the 2012 policy. There should be a review commissioned into the coroner relationship. The National Director of Acute Operations should liaise, uh, liaise with the mm. management of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drada and University Hospital in Limerick and Conley Hospital in Banchestown to determine whether open disclosure are required in relation to specific incidents identified in the findings. Mm. The Taoiseach so says that, that should be the case. Or the no, audit, absolutely. The, uh, the audit says that should be the you case. Know, the yeah. day yeah. of you know, putting the, the, mm. the, the report on a shelf and it never being published mm. is over. We need now to have full transparency on all of these. It is a difficult time for families. Um, Unfortunately, they, there there are times as well. You know, when a review is carried out, you know there there has to be a sign off that you know that you um, are not creating further difficulties by releasing. Um, I suppose it it's difficult to explain, but mm. there there needs to be um, full disclosure on this matter and they must be made available in a very, in as soon as possible um, to all of the families concerned. Okay, uh, Rory O'Murakud what I was asking a, a moment ago in a, a different way do you think that the medics see this in a, a different light and that doctors need it explained to them how people feel about 
their loved one's organs uh, and how they're disposed of, uh, that the doctors don't believe that there's anything wrong and nobody told them that there was anything wrong in incinerating them or any of these other practices. I'm not sure that I'm going to answer for doctors in relation to what they were thinking in relation to this. I'm also accepting hospitals are very busy places. I'm accepting that there's a huge level of people being probably, not probably, being over busy. What we've got in this, well, these bits of reports is that there's a lack of uh, perinatal pathology consultants and that there are a number of others who've been taken back for retirement, some even in, on an ad hoc basis. And the report doesn't, that isn't very complimentary and speaks about the fact that these people are under uh, too much pressure. You know, I don't want to be paraphrasing it wrongly, but that's, that's my particular read of it. So that's something that needs to be down to it. But let's talk Turkey. Like there was an organ retention scandal in 99, 2000. Like we had these guidelines in relation to how we would deal with organs from 2012. They were to be reviewed in 2015. They weren't reviewed in any way, shape or form. We now know that there were a huge amount of hospitals that weren't carrying out these protocols. Uh, and we also know that there's an absolute deficit in relation to um, the legislation that we know was coming and, look, the relationship between the HSE and the coroner and, you know, all those protocols that are needed there need to be put in place. There are guidelines that haven't been adhered to. There's a system that hasn't been capable of it or nobody has been checking in relation to it. We know what the problems are. We don't need a case of these reports being leaked bit by bit by bit. And as you say, people becoming conditioned, hearing it, mm. that's old news. Now, the only thing is this relates to very specific, um, very specific cases of parents that are bereaved. And I, and I think there's nobody that won't be shocked, that won't be sickened and won't be saying this is not the sort of system that we want to see in operation in Ireland in 2022. Uh, and just to conclude, what kind of system do we want? Uh, Colin Burke, can I ask you that? Is it that in 2023 uh, that if a hospital is going to dispose of a, an organ or a number of organs, should they go back to the parents of that child, let's say, uh, who may have died five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, in all circumstances, or where do you draw lines on all of this and ask well, for there, permission or no explain that that's what why, they're going to do? But there's no reason why organs should be retained uh, you know, longer than, I suppose, really a 12-month time period. I mean, that there is no justification for that occurring. I know, but um, it happened in Crumlin for 20 years, didn't it? I know, it did mm. just, and this is the mm. point I'm saying, is that there is no reason why that should have occurred. Um, and I think, you know, the review is to be completed by December 2022. That will update the guidelines that were set out in 2012. Um, in relation to the National Director of Community, um, Acute Operations, has engaged with RCSI and UL hospitals on the, on, in relation to the what occurred in those hospitals and both hospitals groups have provided assurances that are they are in compliance um, with the sensible uh, the sensitive disposal arrangements as per the 2012 standards now they've given that reassurance on it but that still doesn't resolve the problem for what has occurred and what has been identified recently there needs to be transparency in this matter and the families need to have the um, reports 
uh, and explanations given at the earliest possible date. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you both indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Colin Burke is uh, Fine Gael's spokesperson on health and also speaking to us uh, this morning, Rory O'Muraku, who's a Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. What does a uh, politician say about opinion polls? A snapshot in time. The real poll takes place on election day. Well, I, I think this morning there's probably a few politicians who are very happy that it's not election day because it's not a good poll for the government parties. Michal's popularity is down by 11%. Leo's popularity is down by 12%. Eamon's popularity is down by 4%. The Taoiseach Michal Martin now on 40%. Leo Vratker on 36%. Uh, the leader of Fine Gael and... Uh, Tarnished soon to be Taoiseach uh, and indeed uh, Minister for the Environment and leader of uh, the Green Party Eamon Ryan on 15%. Uh, one party leader has seen their popularity increase by just 1% but it's still going in the right direction uh, and I would imagine Mary Lou Macdonald will be the envy of all of uh, the government party leaders not just because her popularity has gone up but her popularity is far in excess of the other three leaders on 40 3%. Okay, that's the leaders, but uh, when it comes uh, to the parties, uh, it gets all the more interesting. Let's play a game of what the Americans might call let's do the math. Okay, we have Fianna Fáil on 20%, Fine Gael on 18%, the Green Party on 3%. Do the math. Okay, that 20% for Fianna Fáil is down 3%. 18% for Fine Gael is down 4%. The Green Party are stagnant at 3%. Combine them, if you've done the maths, uh, and it's 41%. Now, compare that to Sinn Féin. That's the three combined, 41%. Compared to Sinn Féin on 36%. Uh, that's up 3%. So it really is a, a bad poll for the government parties. Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. A bad poll for the government parties, but a particularly bad poll for Fine Gael, Sean. Uh, the worst poll, in fact, for the party since 1994. Does that surprise you? Uh, I don't think it's a massive surprise now that they have fallen this low. Is they've dropped to eighteen percent. They're down four points. That's uh, two points lower than they were in the general election. See the fall down three points to twenty percent uh, as well. So significant drops for they, all the coalition parties. The Greens holding on three percent, but they they're significantly down where they were as well. And I suppose look, you, you get a government that is in the middle of a financial crisis in the the cost of living storm that we're all living in. The I minute governments always tend to drop around then. Uh, you have the, the kind of a culmination of a couple of issues that have been coming together since we came out of COVID because politics as usual was somewhat suspended at least mm. during that time and there was a bit of a bounce for the government but now a lot of people looking at the housing situation saying well government is two years in you made a lot of promises things are only getting worse looking at the likes of childcare and again that cost of living and when things really start to hit people's pockets is typically when you see support for a government going down so not massively surprising but mm. I think it is still quite significant and that it, it will be very worrying for those in the Fine Gael camp 
who have been in a bit of a buoyant mood the last week because obviously they had the good yeah. news last week of Leo Varadkar not getting his uh, not not being charged mm. because of the the leaking of a government document. So their leadership issues seem to be a bit settled. And of the government parties, you would have said maybe they were in sort of a, a more settled position where you had backbenchers in Fianna Fáil giving out and the Greens sort of in a, a perpetual stage of civil war. And so not not a good poll for Fine Gael. Yeah, well, not a good uh, poll for the government either. A very bad poll for Fine Gael. Uh, typically bad poll for Fianna Fáil and the Greens uh, stagnant but at 3% uh, the combination of uh, the three government parties if there was to be an election tomorrow just 41% uh, they certainly will be looking at trying to improve on that uh, and that will be very difficult a very tough budget on, on the way or at least a, a budget that will be very tough to frame Yeah, very, very different position to what they were in a while ago and um, while people had been talking about the rise of Sinn Féin really since the election up until relatively recently it it looked as though were there an election at that moment the government would have been returned because the coalition's combined figures were still relatively good but now you see the entire coalition all three parties are just 5% ahead of Sinn Féin as a standalone entity with Sinn Féin up 3 to 36% in this particular poll and as you mentioned the, go- the coalition combined on 41% so that is definitely worrying for them and I think if you look at the approval ratings of the party leaders as well will definitely be worrying. You have a, a, the government as a whole uh, its satisfaction rating dropping 12 points to 31%. Michal Martin had actually been relatively comfortably the most popular leader in the country until this poll. He's mm. down 11 points to 40% satisfaction rating. Neil Varadkar down 12 points to 36% satisfaction. And Eamon Ryan down 4 to the sort of bottom basement rating of just 15% approval, whereas Mary Lou is now... Uh, quite clearly the most popular uh, party leader in the country, up 1 to 43%. So you can see it's not just the government as a whole, but actually the leaders of that coalition very much uh, feeling it in their own satisfaction ratings. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, and the cost of living uh, undoubtedly uh, driving a, a lot of uh, this. And as we've been hearing, it could get a, a lot worse. I see the contingency plans uh, in uh, the papers uh, this morning for fuel shortages uh, and that you'd have designated critical uh, petrol stations uh, which would mean that frontline workers uh, would be first in line uh, because they'd be the only people who'd be able to get petrol and diesel in those places. Uh, and then there'd be other workers uh, who'd come behind them. Uh, but some people would just have to get it into queues and hope for the best. If we ever get to that stage, let alone the cost of fuel, which at the moment is probably unimaginable if we did get to a stage like that, uh, I don't think there's any government that could claim to be popular with the electorate. Uh, no, I, when you outline that set of scenarios, there, there definitely isn't. Now, hopefully, look, we won't get into that sort of scenario. It is a backup plan. It is an emergency plan, but you just never can say never because even this time last year, we could have predicted the petrol prices and diesel prices would be where they are. You would have to suspect that they're probably going to get worse heading into the winter because this is part of, of Vladimir Putin's plan, as the, the Taoiseach has been very keen to say that he is going to use food and fuel as weapons of war, as much as he's using missiles and bullets. Um, and the, the, as we get into the winter, there is the expectation that more of the pipelines will be turned off or certainly the squeeze will be put on them, which will then put further pressure on fuel prices around Europe, even though we don't directly take gas or oil from Russia and you have the different embargoes coming in. So that you, you would have to say that is going to get worse. You're going to have a cost-of-living budget that is going to be incredibly difficult to deliver in September, even though it is a little bit ahead of time. Uh, and this morning we have both finance ministers before an Oireachtas committee to hear a little bit about what, what they think. But when you get into the figures of it, it sounds like a bumper budget, two points 
uh, 3 billion euro in sort of unaligned spending at the moment, an overall package of 6.7 billion euro. But when you start adding things up, it's not going to go massively far, certainly not as far enough to offset any further increases. A mm. big chunk of that, probably 1.2 to 1.6 billion, is going to have to go towards the public sector pay deals. So that is good for public servants and so beneficial for the rest of the wider society. It's going to cost 75 million euro for every single euro you put on to social welfare payments across the board. So even if they were to do, say, a 10 euro increase, that's 750 million euro of that budget gone straight away. And you can already see that's been whittled away quite significantly. You're approaching the 2 billion mark already of 2.3 to allocate. Then you've got other one-off measures that maybe might come in like an electricity credit. Um, Again, a repeat of that later on in the autumn, maybe something again. On excise, uh, the point Mm. of all that being, the government is not going to be able to do enough to completely offset the increases and people are going to feel the squeeze even more in the winter. So while things are bad for them now and bad for people now, it is probably going to get worse before the end of this year as we get into the changeover of government before it gets any better. Okay, according to this poll today, there is no doubt if there was an election tomorrow, Sinn Féin would be the lead party in government. Sinn Féin wanted an emergency budget that was rejected. Sinn Féin put down a motion of no confidence in the government. The government instead comfortably won a motion of confidence in itself. And if the Sinn Féin motion didn't backfire on the party this week. It didn't do much, did it, to boost its credibility or its popularity for that matter. So I'm sure Sinn Féin will be particularly pleased with today's poll uh, and it'll give them that pep back in their step. It would be great timing for Sinn Féin to put it to come out because it did seem to backfire quite extraordinary. It had been the sixth time that Sinn Féin had put emotional confidence in five years, all five of those have failed, uh, and it was sort of getting to the point where the government has such a comfortable win, 19 votes, it wasn't anywhere close, even the debate felt a bit flat, to be honest, from the Sinn Féin benches and the government sort of rallying around. These motions can often have quite a galvanising effect for the government. You get two hours and you get a good portion of that two hours for government speakers to get up and extol the virtues of everything they're doing and have a, a free cut off the opposition. So they were actually pretty happy out of that. But then seeing this poll this morning on the last day of the door is definitely the sting in the tail because there's no doubt there's an election tomorrow. Sinn Féin would be by far and away the biggest party. Now, once you start talking about forming a government, it gets a little bit more difficult because 36% is not a majority make and then you'd have to start to look around. Would they perhaps partner with Fianna Fáil under potentially a new leader? Under Michal Martin, it would seem to be relatively unlikely. Where do the other votes come from? And you look at some of the parties that maybe they might be expected to, to coalesce with, the likes of the Social Democrats, people before profit, other left, they're all on 2, 3, 4%, uh, 4% for Labour as well, if Sinn Féin was able to sort of hold its nose, given all the criticism it's done of Labour over the years and actually going to coalition with them. It's still, still sort of tricky to make up the numbers, but that is going to be a problem for three to two years down the line because the coalition is not going to let this collapse if there is anything they can do about it because looking at these numbers, they would be returning with much reduced benches. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. And just to recap on those numbers for you, Fianna Fáil is down 3 to 20, Fine Gael down 4 to 18. Uh, we have uh, the Green Party stagnant on 3%, a combined total of 41%, as opposed to the Sinn Féin poll of 36%. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some comments coming to us uh, this morning. We'd Mairead in Drogheda in touch with us, and Mairead was uh, in touch 
uh, about organ retention and indeed how some organs are being disposed of or incinerated or sent to Belgium for incineration and she says she feels so sorry for any of the families who have been affected by this. It's just heartbreaking to lose a child in the first place. Imagine then hearing that your baby's organs had been sent abroad to be incinerated. Just horrible, says Maraid. Uh, uh, another call from Lorraine about the same subject. Lorraine says she's just sickened listening to that story about the organs of babies. God help the poor families. What is the point in having guidelines if they're not adhered to? Just typical of this country, she says. Thank you indeed for that. Deirdre and Kells in touch. It would be unusual if Deirdre and Kells wasn't in touch or in touch about Our Lady's Hospital. And she says they have to keep the emergency department open uh, the idea of it becoming a minor injury unit uh, unit doesn't work uh, for Deirdre. Uh, she says they need to take the pressure off the other hospitals. Well, your text this morning, Deirdre, is timely because uh, the issue was raised once again in the doll yesterday by uh, the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign and aim to TD, Peter Tobin, with the tea shop. Thousands of people marched in Navin at the weekend to protect the a and service in Navan, uh, which provides a life and death treatment uh, services uh, for the people of Meath. And the level of anger was absolutely palpable uh, that at a time of a key capacity overcrowding, that the government was going to take capacity out of the system. Now, 23 hospital consultants have provided amazing data, which blows the HSE figures out of the water. The HSE states that five patients will travel from, from Meath to Drada every day, but the 23 hospital consultants in Drada have used the hospital's own data systems to show that up to 47 patients daily could travel from Navin into Drada uh, every single day. Now, I've received an answer from the Minister for Health, who has stated that the review into the closure of Navin A&E would just take a couple of weeks, and that preparations for closure can proceed in parallel with that review. Taoiseach, is that not outrageous to review something but to continue to close it at the same time? Time is up, Taoiseach, please. I have a long experience in health to know that different consultants can produce different perspectives. Um, Sorry, so you asked a question, I just can make the point. There have been other consultants, as you know, arguing very strongly for actions in relation to Navin and would argue differently to the consultants that you've spoken to. That's fair enough, that's the way the world works. So it's, there's no one uniform view in respect of the configuration of services from the medical community um, in Navin or in the Northeast. Now, I've said before that we have to learn lessons from previous configurations. The centralization of cancer services, for example, was opposed left, right and centre up and down the country by protests. Uh, I experienced protests myself as Minister of Health in many, many locations. Ultimately, actually, some of the decisions taken proved very beneficial and better health outcomes. That said, in other areas... We did learn as well that it led to too much activity or uh, overcrowding in certain other locations. So there has to be balance. And we have All to right, learn the previous configurations Time is to up. make sure that we can get the optimal Time is treatments up, in Navin and in other locations across the, uh, northeast. In the northeast, that's the Taoiseach. Martin responding in the dawn yesterday to Padre Tobin and... I don't know how you're hearing that, but the way I'm hearing it is the way I'm hearing what Stephen Donnelly is saying, which is the emergency department in Navin must close because it's not safe to keep it open uh, and it's not safe to send people elsewhere at the moment. But once it is safe to send people somewhere else, namely Drogheda, 
possibly Blanchardstown. Uh, they will close the emergency department in Navan. That's the way I hear it. Um, we can't ask the Minister directly uh, because Stephen Donnelly has not made himself available to local media on one of uh, the most important issues in this region since it became an issue. Uh, John in RD, thanks for your call to the programme uh, this morning. John says the only poll that matters is the one on the day of the election. Of course Sinn Féin are going to be popular at the moment because they're in opposition. Can't wait to see how popular they'll be if they get into government, says John in RD. As I say, John, thanks uh, for your call uh, and indeed uh, for your question. Uh, maybe the answer comes uh, from uh, Brendan, uh, who's been on with possibly the most overtly political comment that has ever come to the programme. He says it'll be the ruination of uh, the country. The Justice Minister will pardon so-called political prisoners. Uh, there'll be all sorts of shenanigans going on. Ono Brin will have a house for everyone in the country and it'll bankrupt us. Mary Lou MacDonald will have a big salary as Taoiseach and how much will she get? I think the Taoiseach will only earn as much as the doll will vote for the Taoiseach to earn and in line with public service pay increases uh, which are set separately uh, to uh, the Oireachtas uh, and he says uh, for all of the TDs along the border uh, there's going to be some problems. Thank you indeed uh, Brandon for your text to, to the programme. Uh, just to remind you a little bit later on we'll be speaking uh, with some government ministers Helen McEntee and Simon Coveney due to join us uh, on uh, the programme uh, today and and as always, if you have anything to say or if you have any questions for the ministers, uh, we'd love to hear from you this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, Fianna Fáil has launched its health policy for women reaching for equality. Let's hear a little bit more about it. We're joined uh, by Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers, who's behind this policy. And a very good morning to you, Senator. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme, as always. Uh, why uh, a specific policy for women in terms of health care? Yeah, so the, the project started about 10 months ago, um, towards the end of last year. And the, the reason for it is that with everything in politics, it begins with the policy. And that's how you get things resourced. And ultimately, that's how you get services delivered. Um, I think people would accept that we've definitely fallen short over the last number of decades in terms of how we've treated women, particularly when it comes to their health care. And uh, women, uh, because of going through their reproductive years and then menopause afterwards, there are additional needs and additional challenges um, different to uh, men and that's why we felt there was a need for a separate standalone policy and we are the first party, Fianna Fáil, to have a standalone women's health policy something uh, we're very, very proud of and we launched that policy this week. Mm. Uh, and uh, there are many issues uh, that are, are unique to women uh, as you say. Uh, why uh, are, are they not uh, addressed under current policies uh, and why is it necessary to have uh, a separate policy? I can understand you being proud of it if it is necessary but why why is uh, that the case? Are, are these issues that have been overlooked? Well, some of them would have been overlooked over many years, I suppose. With, with a lot of female health issues, you take, for example, menstrual health or fertility issues or menopause, we've really only started to discuss these issues in the last number of years. We've, you know, as a young girl, you're really told that these are things you just don't talk about, that they're private. Um, and that means you don't often go to a DP when you should go. So for those reasons, we probably haven't had the services because we just didn't talk about them. Is that still um, the case? So, it's changing. Okay. It's not exactly where we need it to be, but it is changing, which I think is a positive thing. Okay. Uh, I suppose one of uh, the big changes in the last couple of years is uh, the attitude towards menopause and HRT. 
Yeah, I mean, that's been a, a huge turnaround. I think people will be forgiven for thinking that Joe Duffy invented the menopause, but actually the conversation had started long before that. Um, but certainly that was that's a, a very good example of an issue that just wasn't spoken about. Women suffered in silence. They didn't seek help from their GP. Many women thought that there wasn't any help there and it was something you had to just suffer through and eventually it would settle uh, and many women were told that that just get on with it mm. so you know I think women have found their voice when it comes to these issues and um, GPs are encouraging women to come forward and that's one of the key recommendations from the, um, the policy that Fianna Fáil launched this week was a life course approach to female health where we want women to go to their GP right through the life course from when you start menstruating right through your reproductive years and into your menopause years the more you see your GP the, the healthier you can keep yourself um, and you know we can a lot of the issues that women have if you take for example um, pelvic issues uh, pelvic floor continence issues these are preventable um, they don't need to be as bad and mm. we take France for example they have um, automatic uh, free pelvic floor physio after you give birth and they do not have anywhere near the rates of prolapse or incontinence that we do we have here in Ireland so we can improve things for women but it's about getting women into their GPs early and looking after them right through their life not waiting until they have an issue and then trying to t- treat it then it's prevention really is the key I think mm, uh, and of course uh, all women listening to us uh, this morning identifying with the issues uh, that you're talking about some men scratching their heads uh, there was a, a, an unintended consequence wasn't there of uh, the campaign to change attitudes uh, towards HRT, not just here, but uh, across Europe. And it led to a shortage, uh, such was the demand uh, for medication. Yeah, so HRT, I'm not completely up to speed on exactly how it's produced, but it's not something that you can turn around overnight and produce quickly. Mm. Um, So there's been a massive increase in demand, not just here in Ireland, but globally. But one day, day, all the women in Europe were afraid of getting cancer. The next day they weren't and they all wanted it uh, and they couldn't produce it quickly enough. Uh, And uh, that led to, to its own problems, I think. It did, and, and because there are different types of HRT, so every woman is different and everybody has different needs. So people use some people use patches, others mm. use oral medication, others use gels or a combination of, of some of those. And for many women, they will have tried and tested a few different options till they find the one that works for them. So women have had particular difficulties in having a stable supply of the one that suits them the best. And mm. um, so they've been offered alternatives, which for some women just aren't working very well. Uh, but it is it's an incredible turnaround. Mm, I mean, mm, you go back mm, mm. five years ago, we didn't have this issue. So in some ways, it's a positive because we yeah. know more women are availing of that help. But the supply chain issues are an issue. And you go it's back... starting to resolve a little bit, but you, they're still not resolved. Sure, you go back five years ago and 500 years before that. And uh, I suppose you can only surmise that women were living in misery for all of those years. Or many women were. M- many women. Some women yeah. will have a very easy yeah. menopause. Yeah. And, but, mm-hmm. but lots yeah. of women will have difficulties. And it's not just about getting hot flushes and, and, and night sweats. Mm. Um, you have brain fog fatigue, there's a very strong link between anxiety and depression, so mental health issues, so it can be very serious for some women Um, and you know, I suppose talking about it means that if there are women listening they might think, well I'm going through that and actually there is help and if you go and talk to your GP there's lots of things that you can do to ease those symptoms, Mm. so I would encourage women not just to sit at home and suffer but to actually get out talk to your GP uh, and ask for that help. Okay, Um I, I suppose uh, it's only fair to say that the HSE has policies on all of these issues. So how would the Fianna Fáil policy feed into the way the HSE deals with women's health care? 
Yeah, so this is this is our party policy on women's health and what we will do with this policy. This is our starting point in terms of pushing for additional services. So, so for example, um, we're looking for free and stable supply of HRT for all women. Uh, we want to see a fully funded public IVF system. Uh, we want to see a funded life course approach. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To the GP service, the expansion of free contraception to all women. So there are some key recommendations in the policy um, that are on the car. And there are policies in some of these areas. Um, you know, Ms. Don has... Um, Lisa, your line has suddenly started to break up. I'm not sure if you're on the move there. Oh, apologies. I think I might be in bad coverage. Um, What I was saying is that Minister Donnelly has done some work in this space and a lot of good work. He's got the first menopause clinics up and running, the first endometriosis clinic up and running, uh, begun the free contraception scheme. So a lot is starting to happen, but we have a lot to miss for because so much was not done in the last number of decades. Mm. Uh, And what about um, keeping the focus on these issues uh, going back uh, to what you said about growing up as a young girl and you were told not to talk about certain issues uh, that I I imagine is a big part of um, bringing about a a change in services that are delivered that it comes down to attitudes Absolutely, you've hit the nail on the head there I mean we have to educate young girls and empower them to ask the right questions about their health so we need to educate young girls as to what a normal period is. You know, when, if you're in debilitating pain and missing days off school, that's not normal. And, you know, you should ask for help. But girls didn't do that. Uh, similarly, when it comes to fertility, I think we have to have honest questions around fertility and the impact um, it has if you want to have your babies a bit later in life, that you might experience fertility issues. They're the kind of conversations we should be having with young girls so that they have the most up-to-date, detailed information so they can make the right choices about their own health care. Something we haven't been very good at doing here to heretofore. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That is Fianna Fáil Senator um, and Deputy Leader in Shannon Erin, Lisa Chambers. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, joins us uh, to talk about uh, the hate crime, hate speech and hate crime bill that uh, you've been hearing about over the last 24 hours in particular. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, These crimes will relate uh, to characteristics that are protected in your legislation like race, colour, nationality, religion, ethnic or national origin, sexual orientation, gender, including gender expression and gender identity and disability. Uh, and you've uh, introduced a demonstration test in line with what was called a motivation test. Uh, explain the difference between the two to us, if you would, please. Well, just to explain it quite simply, um, we have proposed, and and this is not a new introduction or a a new proposal for the bill itself. I I would have spoken to you about this previously. We have an incitement to hatred law from back in 1989, and it does not cover hate crimes. So for the very simple fact that there are people in this country who have been victims of crimes simply because of who they are, and and you have named out, you know, because of their race or their religion, the colour of their skin. um, And it's really important that we send a signal to those victims that this is not the kind of society that we want or that we would tolerate, but also to the people who commit these crimes, that there will be harsher penalties. In order to reach a certain bar or for there to be a prosecution, what I had originally proposed is that we would have a motivation test. So this would essentially mean that you would have to prove when a person was committing a crime, so if a person was assaulting another person, that in that moment in time they were motivated by their hatred of that person or group of people. You're kind of trying to get into a person's mind. So, you know, you have to look and see, well, are, are they part of a an organisation that might express particular views? Do they have certain types of things written on social media? Have they got form? Have they done something like this before? And it is, it is much harder to prove. And when we explored further, uh, there was work done by my colleagues in the Justice Oireachtas Committee, and then we looked at other jurisdictions, so the UK, Scotland, Wales, uh, and what Northern Ireland is doing. And what they have is a demonstration test. So instead of having to prove, I suppose, what a person is thinking, you have to prove the act itself, that it's motivated by hate. So just to give maybe an example mm. of what that might be. So if, if you could imagine somebody has left a bar at night time and, and it's um, maybe an LGBT plus bar and somebody follows them and starts shouting abuse or homophobic slurs at them and then subsequently assaults them by their very action, but also by their comments. This is a demonstration of, of, of hatred because of um, that particular person's characteristics, so perhaps mm. their sexual orientation. Or, or you might have another situation where a family are in their home, they're not originally from Ireland, they might be a different nationality, a different race, a different colour skin, um, and their home is attacked and graffiti is written on the home, very clearly indicating why the home has been attacked and it's because of who they are or their race or religion. So it is still quite a high bar because mm. you still have to show a, a, quite a high level and, and there has to be obviously a criminal act and then a, you know either an assault or harassment or a vandalism of some kind but there has to be a way to show that this is motivated by hate yeah. so it, it, it's still quite a high bar it, it's still quite um, you know it, it's not that anybody who commits a crime is suddenly going to be committing a hate crime there are certain specific uh, different areas that have to be covered here but I I think it is really important because in recent years while we don't have this on the statute books the Gardaí and our judiciary have started to record these types of crimes and since 2015 uh, we have seen a 50% increase where a judge has 
decided that there had been an aggravating factor of hate and has recorded that in their own way. Um, so we really need to respond to this and we really need to understand that when somebody is a victim of a crime simply because of who they are, it has a much greater impact mm. on them and it has a much more detrimental impact on them. Okay. Uh I know there's people who go gay bashing. Uh, uh, they may not put it quite as politely as that, um, but uh, I don't think it involves following people coming out of a, a, a gay bar and just beating the living daylights out of them. There's always the type of language that demonstrates the motivation, as you explained to us there a moment ago, and the language in itself uh, can uh, hurt probably as much as some of the punches. Is it that in a case like that, you'll be arrested, possibly convicted for assault and a hate crime separate to the assault? So in, say, that circumstance, or, you know, and, and you mentioned there, it's not necessarily someone leaving a bar. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we've seen a number of incidents in recent weeks and months where members of the LGBT plus community have been uh, targeted or assaulted. But obviously, that, that's just one characteristic and one group of people. There, there are many, many others who have been victims here. Um, but you will obviously need to have evidence with any crime or any um, prosecution. You have to have evidence. So if you have a witness... Uh, that was there that obviously saw the assault but also heard potential slurs or potential uh, things that were Mm. said, then you can essentially press charges so it's an assault charge but there can then be an aggravating factor for hate. So if you look at what is the maximum penalty for assault at the moment, uh, assault causing harm, it is up to five years. If someone is found guilty of assault with hate motivation, then you could face a maximum of seven years. Mm. So there is quite a severe increase in terms of the overall penalty. uh, And then the same goes for, you know, whether it's somebody has vandalised somebody's home or property, the maximum penalty can potentially increase by two years. So obviously you have to prove, there has to be evidence. But again, if you have graffiti that says something quite clearly indicating, if you Mm. have evidence and witnesses to say, um, it's not enough to say, and this is important because again, you know, people want to know that we're getting the right balance here, that we're not stepping over any line, you know, particularly when it comes to freedom of speech, particularly when mm. it comes to being able to have debate. It is an objective test, particularly when it comes to um, incitement to hatred. So it's not just the victim saying, mm. well, I feel that this was the wrong thing and that this person shouldn't have said it. Yeah. Or, um, or, or I, I hate people um, uh, because uh, they vote Fine Gael and you go out or anything you like that. You know, but 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 just to, to come back uh, to the eight uh, sections uh, and staying with that issue of uh, assault. Uh, if you hate somebody because of their race, color, nationality, religion, ethnicity, or nationality, sexual orientation, gender, or expression, gender identity, or disability, uh, if you hate somebody uh, for any of those reasons and you're shouting abuse at them while you're beating them up in in the circumstance of assault, there's that aggravated factor which could lead to a, a longer sentence. Uh, and you're saying that the, the, the shouting or, or the verbal abuse, uh, the equivalent of that could be graffiti or a social media post. Absolutely. So the the, the criminal offence itself is a criminal offence. And obviously that's already in law and that's very clearly set out. But it is where there is another clear indication and where the action is demonstrating and a follow on from that indication. So it's, it's, it's not all, you know, it, it's not straightforward. As I said, it is still a, hard, a high bar to reach. Um, but instead of using a motivation test where you, you essentially have to prove 
that at that moment in time the person was motivated by their hatred of a person or a group of people. You, you can't just look at that split moment in time. You have to look at them as a person, what they have been doing, who they have been engaging with, what they have been saying more generally. Mm. Um, whereas this is the demonstration of the action itself uh, and obviously what had gone with that action, so to speak. So, as I said, the examples of if somebody is assaulting someone but they have clearly been verbally abusing them, they have been clearly been using, um, you know, really mm. horrible or vile language or they have sprayed something on someone's house or on their car or, or, or something like that, then that, I suppose, can be used. So, again, I'm, I'm saying all of this, it mm. would have to go through a court of law, it would have to be brought forward as evidence and then a decision would be taken by your peers. And I suppose the question is, would a reasonable person think that this was a crime motivated or that this demonstrated hatred towards that person? And that is where, uh, I suppose, the test comes in that a, a person other than the victim would have to think, well, yes, reasonably, that's what I think that this person was doing. And that's the same type of a test that would have to apply to incitement to hatred. So okay. it's really important that we don't cross over in free speech, that we don't strike sure. a debate. So yeah. simply because I might have a different opinion to another yeah. person, they might be very strongly held views. Somebody might insult me by their views and I might not like it, but to simply disagree or insult somebody is not enough. You have to show that by your words, what you are saying, that you are actively trying to incite hatred against that person or, or, or incite others to potentially be violent towards that and person. And if there isn't violence, though, Minister, I mean, what if it, it's just hateful words uh, and uh, you write graffiti uh, about somebody because of their race or their colour and tell them to go home? Or and You quite often see individuals named in graffiti and certainly on social media posts uh, and it can bring a lot of attention to that person, uh, maybe to their sexual orientation, which they didn't want somebody else to know uh, about, or, or or something like that. Uh, if it, it doesn't result in a, a separate crime, uh, will the hateful language that's used publicly on social media or through graffiti or some of uh, these other methods be a crime in itself? So yes, potentially, and obviously it depends on the situation and what is written and and what is insinuated by it. But there are two separate elements to this bill. There's hate crime, so that's where you have a a crime that's already set out in law and there's an aggravating motive. The separate piece then is incitement to hatred. So this is language. It could be verbal, it could be in print, so in paper. It could be on social media, it could be over the airways, it could be at a demonstration or a protest. And if, again you can show or that the, the 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 normal person, so to speak, on hearing this would believe that, yes, this person is trying to incite hatred against an individual or another group of people. That is the bar that we are setting. So simply by having an argument or saying something that another person doesn't like or having a very strongly held different belief to another person, it is not enough to be convicted of incitement to hatred. You have to demonstrate that you tried to incite hatred against that person by what you were saying. Mm. So, you know, again, it does come back to the particular characteristics. So there are safeguards in place to protect free speech. There are safeguards Mm. in the bill to protect debate, be it political, be it religious, be it, uh, you know, cultural or other types of discussions. And even if a discussion is happening that is based on one of the characteristics that you've mentioned, you can have a discussion and people can disagree about things. But it's where somebody then suddenly feels in fear because of what has been said. And again, this goes back to the Mm. test. It's not just about the victim. It's what would a reasonable person think by what was said. 
and, and what was meant by it. Would uh, burning a British flag uh, come uh, under this legislation or political posters or effigies of politicians uh, or some of these other um, terrible things uh, that we're seeing in Northern Ireland uh, at the moment, uh, if uh, it was to happen in reverse here in the Republic and resulted in violence, or even if it hadn't, uh, would it come under your hate crime legislation? Well, it, it's very, it, it's hard for me to answer specifically because obviously you would have to take all of the circumstances into account. But certainly if a person or a group of people are saying things that incite others to commit violence or to, uh, I suppose, to racially abuse or to, in mm. some way... That's what's happening in the North, isn't it? ...people to, to be fearful. Um, well, look, I would say in the North what they have at the moment um, is legislation, but they have a demonstration or they have a motivation test when it comes to hate crime. They're now actively looking at how they could introduce a demonstration test Mm. where you show that the act itself um, showed hatred. In terms of incitement to hatred, again, it, it is obviously for the Gardaí to decide that they have evidence that by saying something, mm. an individual incited others to commit violence against another person. But when, when, when they're burning tricolours on bonfires uh, to celebrate the 12th of July, you'd imagine the PSNI would be out arresting people for inciting hatred uh, against the nationalist community and Irish people generally. So, again, you have to take everything in context and you have to take every situation by itself. So, potentially, yes, mm. if somebody was to ring the PSNI and say that by this happening, this is inciting hatred against another group of people, then, yes, the Gardaí could decide whether or not um, to, to take charges or to prosecute or to follow that up. Um, obviously, then you would have to decide, and in a court of law with your jury, would a reasonable person think that by this happening that you were likely going to incite hatred against a group of people so I mean you know it's hard for me to say absolutely yes or no to any situation but absolutely I think any situation where it puts another group of people in fear um, or where it targets Mm. another group of people um, then that potentially can be prosecuted Um, but it is very specific to individual cases Mm. Well it's completely sectarian and it's fuelled on hatred and I would imagine that under your legislation minister if the reverse was to happen here and we were to be burning Ulster flags or Union Jacks or putting up posters of unionist politicians and burning them alongside some of what is predictable in terms of what people are saying or shouting at some of these bonfires, uh, that it would come under your legislation uh, and you would imagine that the same should uh, apply in the North. So, again, it's very hard for me to get into specific cases, but absolutely, if if and when this law is introduced, and it will be in my intention is to have it introduced by the end of the year, if by a person's actions or by what they're saying or doing incites hatred against another group of people, then that is something that the Gardaí can investigate and obviously would have to bring forward evidence and then that would have to be decided in the court of law. Um, how that is being, uh, I suppose, applied in the North, that's not, uh, you know, I'm not able to respond to that, I suppose, okay. because each situation is different. And you may have situations where people have alerted the Gardaí and I suppose I don't know and, and that might be the case. But what we have said out here for incitement to hatred, uh, what is slightly different to the 1989 Act, which is, in place, it was very forward-thinking at the time, but there's only ever been 50, 50 convictions in that, you know, in that quite long mm. period of time. Is where a person intentionally or recklessly sets out and 
says something that then potentially causes harm to another person. So if you know that by perhaps putting up a tweet that has quite strong language and is quite uh, targeting of an individual or a group of people, but you put it up anyway, knowing that the result might be that somebody might uh, be harmed, then that comes under this bar as well. Okay. Um, so it is really, it, mm. it, it is about, it's not about disliking people, it's not about disagreeing with people, it's not about people being it's insulted. Hatred. Yeah. It, it is hatred, hatred for another yeah. person, mm-hmm. fears fears for their life. And unfortunately okay. in, in our country there are people who are actually afraid to go about their daily lives. We no, had a huge consultation yeah. before we published yeah. this bill yeah. and there were people as part of that consultation who said they don't yeah. go on public transport, they don't go out certain times at night because oh, it's they have been victims. It, it really is dreadful and there's been a broad welcome for your bill Minister and I think you deserve congratulations on it. Um, can, I, can, I, can I just a- ask you very briefly before you leave us about the refugee situation and the government meeting today. Uh, when the government meets, will you be raising concerns about the security of women and children if there's to be a tent village uh, established in Gormanston? Well, look, I, I think as people will have seen in the last 24 hours, the numbers of people coming into Ireland, not just from Ukraine, but also international protection applicants, um, has continued and has risen significantly. So we have, uh, on a daily basis, a large number coming in from both categories. Uh, We need to make sure that people who come in, that they have shelter, that they have food, that they are safe. Um, Gormanston obviously was uh, put in place quite some time ago, should we need it, if there is an overflow or if there is an requirement on a short-term basis. Uh, And this is something that we will have to discuss today. Will the security follow follow to... Uh, uh, allow peace of mind so that women are chil- and children are safe? Well, maybe what I would remind people is that Gormanston is an army camp. Um, it is an army base. So, I mean, absolutely anybody who could potentially be sent to Gormanston will 100% be safe. And I would absolutely assure people of that. But this is something that we have to discuss today. Uh, the Taoiseach has called a meeting and it's really important that we get ahead of this and that obviously we are able to respond to people who are in need and, and as you know and I know this war has not concluded in fact it is likely to continue for some time so we need to make sure that when we said we were going to help anyone who needed our help that we can do that okay. uh, so there will be a lot to discuss and, and obviously I'll, I'll hopefully talk to you again about it yeah, uh, I'm sure yeah stage. yeah, and I won't ask you to preempt those discussions any further but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme as always that's uh, the Minister for Justice Fine Gael TD for me these telemachantee Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Defence, Simon Coveney, as you know, has announced uh, the details of an action plan to implement recommendations made by the Commission on the Defence Forces. The Minister has described uh, the planned investment as the biggest investment in defence in the history of uh, the state. What it means is that €1.5 billion will be spent on defence by 2028, or if you take inflation into account, it's expected that that figure will reach €1.9 billion. The Minister is on the line. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Part of that spend will be on an additional 6,000 troops, which will increase the size of the force by 35%. It's a very ambitious plan. Yeah, it's hugely ambitious, um, but it's exciting too, um, and it's needed. Um, so what we have uh, from from February is is the work uh, of a group of experts uh, called the Commission on the Defence Forces. They spent 13 months putting a report together for government. Uh, 
uh, and they didn't pull their punches. You know, they made it very clear that um, that the defence forces, as they are today, do not have the resources for what they need to do uh, in terms of what's being asked of them by government and by the state. Uh, and so we're responding to that by by increasing defence expenditure significantly. Uh, so we'll be moving effectively from spending 1.1 billion euros this year to spending about 1.9 billion euros by 2028. Um, so effectively, that's a commitment to, of spending about 9 billion euros uh, on defence between now and 2028 over the next six years. And in that period, we have to work uh, in partnership between the Department of Defence and the Defence Forces uh, to um, to get about an extra 3,000 people into the permanent Defence Forces and about an extra 3,000 people into the reserve. Uh, there's never, ever been a level of ambition like that before in terms of growth and expansion and investment for the Defence Forces. Uh, we're obviously also changing and improving the allowance system uh, to make it more attractive to join uh, and, of course, to, to hold on to people once we get them into the Defence Forces as well. Mm. So it's a, it's a very exciting challenge. And uh, a lot of money being spent uh, on new military equipment uh, as well, Minister. Um, well, yeah, military equipment and people. You know, so, yeah. you know, if we're... If we're and what, what, what are these people going to do with this military equipment? Well, I mean, you know, some of it will be ships um, um, in terms of modernising our, our fleet um, uh, and some of the extra people will be what's called double crewing on those ships because at the moment we are struggling, if I'm honest, uh, to uh, to recruit and retain people into the naval service um, as many as we need. And as a result, for the last number of years, we've seen some ships tied up because of a lack of crew. Like That's just not an acceptable situation for me. So we're responding to that. We're improving allowances for people in the naval service and we're moving to what's called double crewing of ships. In other words, ensuring that people don't have to spend so much time uh, away from their families at sea each year. Um, and then within the army, um, you know, the, the, the reality is that you have to constantly upgrade equipment for our defence forces in the army. If they're serving overseas on peacekeeping missions, as more than 500 of them are today, we have to make sure that their armour, their firepower, their equipment their, uh, and, and everything else that keeps them safe uh, in those missions uh, is upgraded and invested in. Um, and in the Air Corps, um, you know, we know because the Commission is very clear on this, uh, we need to have what's called uh, strategic reach capacity. In other words, if there's an emergency in a part of the world where we need to get Irish people out quickly, uh, we need to have the, the capacity to be able to go and get them. Uh, and we, we don't have that at the moment. We have to try and charter a plane and so on to do that. So, you know, there's a lot of clear evidence within the Commission's report of the need to upgrade equipment. If you take, for example, Ireland knowing what's in our airspace mm. or the international airspace that we're responsible for off our west coast, we don't have that capacity at the moment because we don't have what's called primary radar facilities. Um, we need to invest in that. It's going to cost us about 200 million euros. Um, so, so this investment isn't about necessarily guns and bullets and ammunition, although it is about that too. It's also about um, uh, key infrastructure, upgrading our barracks like Aiken Barracks and so on, um, uh, to facilitate more numbers, uh, to improve the, the accommodation facilities, to improve the gym mm -hmm. and fitness facilities, uh, and all the other things that are needed for a growing, expanding defence force. And will it give Ireland uh, the wherewithal to use the guns, bullets and ammunition, uh, not just in peacekeeping missions, uh, but also in armed conflict? Well, no, I mean, that's not the space Ireland is in. You know, we need, uh, the space we're in is to have a, uh, a respectable and credible defence capacity 
for our own people and our own sovereignty, uh, our maritime domain, our air domain and so on. Um, you know, every other country in the world has moved, uh, sorry, every other country in Europe, I should say, has moved well ahead of Ireland in terms of spend. So as part of our research and the build up to this government decision, we looked at other EU countries of similar size and wealth to Ireland. Mm. We looked at Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Netherlands, Norway, Portugal and Sweden. And we benchmarked Ireland against those countries in terms of standards. And they're they're a a group of countries. Some of them are NATO, some of them aren't NATO, some of them are neutral, some of them aren't and so on. But in truth, Ireland spends about a third of what other countries of our size and wealth spend. Yeah, but we're a peaceful, neutral country. Yeah, Uh, yeah. yeah. And so are some of these other countries. Okay, so 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 this is not about creating war going capacity in Ireland or militarizing Ireland. Mm. What we're simply doing is we're moving from spending about a third of what other countries spend on defence, regardless of what metric you use. You know, uh, 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 defence spend as a percentage of our mm. overall budget, uh, as a you know, d- d- defence spend per head of population, yeah. or as a percentage of, of GDP. Minister, we heard you say the other day that we heard you say the other day that PESCO, uh, this uh, joint European military alliance, is not a Trojan horse for a European army. Uh, but if that's the case. What have Irish troops been doing in Mali? Sorry, um, well, PESCO and Mali have very little to do with each other. Uh, PESCO isn't a joint military alliance. Um, what, what PESCO is, is a structure whereby European countries, when they choose to, on a voluntary basis, can train together and cooperate together. Um, and, um, uh, and we have, like other countries in Europe, agreed to work with groups of European countries to build expertise and skill sets. Like in any sector, Ireland isn't an island on our own, isolating ourselves from the rest of the world. We work with other countries, whether that's in technology, whether it's on defence or whatever. Uh, and so um, at the defence, I asked the defence forces to look at areas where we believe we could benefit from training and cooperating with other countries to improve our own equipment and skill sets. And that's that's what we're doing. Um, whether it's in whether it's in the cyber domain, whether it's in military first aid, uh, whether it's a response to natural disasters, these are the kind of areas that, if there is a major disaster in Europe or in North Africa or somewhere else, and if the European Union wants to respond collectively by having four or five countries mm. responding to help people or to intervene to to prevent conflict, that actually Ireland has the capacity to respond, and we have a very proud history of peacekeeping, peace enforcement, peace intervention in different parts of the world. But is that what the Irish Defence Forces were... Is that what the Irish Defence Forces were doing in Mali under the EU training mission uh, when they were providing training in combat? No, they weren't actually. And I've I've been to Mali and I've visited personally the training mission. This is about um, uh, training uh, the Malian armed forces to be able to respond to the terrorism threat in that country, which is very significant. Mm. Unfortunately, um, what's been happening in Mali over the last 18 months or so makes it much more difficult for that training mission to operate in the future. And we are reviewing our presence in that training mission. We're going to downsize our presence from 20 to Mm. 14 from September on. But we may well be making a decision in the months ahead um, that it's no longer credible to be training the Malian armed forces. Well, it seems that way, doesn't it? 
Yeah, that, I mean, that seems inevitable given uh, some of the atrocities that they've uh, been responsible right. for, including the massacre of up to 300 uh, civilians uh, who they called anti-insurgent. You're calling them terrorists. Uh, in some ways, it sounds like uh, training the British Army uh, to uh, slaughter or massacre uh, the Irish rebels in 1916. Well, I mean, I think that's a very unfortunate comparison that you've just used uh, and I think you should be careful uh, by making those kind of comparisons we're, we're, we're in Mali to try to protect people's lives uh, we are potentially, uh, we have uh, agreed to leave the UN hmm. um, um, peacekeeping mission in Mali because um, uh, we're satisfied that it's the right time to leave okay. and we are working with other European countries But it was the uh, massacre decide, of 300 civilians in Mora that has led to the European Union has it not uh, to decide to withdraw from Mali uh, despite yes. the French interest in it? Yes, uh, well <laughs> there are a number of different uh, peacekeeping and military missions in Mali there's a French mission which is French led there's an EU training mission uh, which is about training soldiers, uh, not being involved directly in conflict. And then there's a there, there's a there's a UN mission, uh, which is about trying to keep warring factions apart. Ireland has been involved in that. We're reviewing mm. um, that that participation along with the EU. But we are we are only there to try to keep the peace. Mm. And if we're not contributing to keeping the peace, well, then we won't be staying. Uh, and but you said that that didn't need. Also, but Michael, there's also a consequence of leaving Mali mm. because if you if you pull EU troops out of Mali who are trying to calm things down and keep the yeah. peace, well then well then you leave it to others. But you you, so, you said that for example, the, the Malian forces at the moment are being supported by Russian-sponsored mercenaries. <laughs> yes, who who who, who, atrocities. Yeah, who who invaded Ukraine? Uh, the the, right. the 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 Wagner mercenaries, isn't it? Uh, and you 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 told the doll that you didn't need to say the the. the approval of the Dáil to send 14 troops to 14 Rangers to, to Mali because it was less than 20. Uh, but there's questions uh, about uh, the neutrality of the country as a result of that decision. No, there isn't um, questions of neutrality. Um, what we have, um, Ireland's neutrality is not in question. Um, we are not a military aligned country. We're not a member of NATO. We are not a member of any defence pact in the European Union. What we are is a country that volunteers to be involved in peacekeeping and training missions and humanitarian missions in different parts of the world. And it's the Irish government that decides, along with the Irish Parliament, the Dáil and Shannad, uh, and, uh, and we do that in a way that's consistent with UN mandates. That's what, that's what mm. we do. That's what we have been doing for more than 50 years. And that's what gives Ireland credibility as an independent, neutral country that does actually make... Uh, positive interventions to try to keep warring factions apart and try to protect civilians in in, in places of conflict. But there was no consultation with members of the Dáil because it was less no, than 20 sorry, troops. When when 14 no, rangers no. went to Mali, it was less than 20 troops. That's why there wasn't uh, a Dáil voter. Well, I'm not sure who's briefing you, but that there, there, there was consultation with the Dáil. What there wasn't was a requirement for what's called a triple lock. Hmm which is a system that we no, but have. Result in a dull vote, that's what I meant by it, consultation. No, no, no but, but, but I mean, like, I'm totally transparent about these mm. issues, whether it's on the radio or whether it's in the doll. Technically, the triple lock doesn't apply to a training mission, as it happens, uh, or a humanitarian mission. So, for example, when I made a decision to send uh, naval ships to the Mediterranean uh, to pull more than 16,000 people out of the water 
um, refugees that were coming from North Africa to Europe uh, who were in, uh, in danger of, of drowning. Uh, you know, was that something that we shouldn't have been doing because of neutrality? Of course it wasn't. Ireland has to be an international actor. We're a wealthy country. We have a very well-trained military. They do a fantastic job as peacekeepers. And we shouldn't be uh, shy about talking about that. But of course, we have to have uh, systems that ensure that the decision-making around where we send our troops and when we send them uh, is consistent with our neutrality, our constitution, and gets the endorsements of the doll when appropriate. Okay. Uh, and that's what and that's what we do. Minister, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program this morning. That's uh, the mi- thank you. The Minister for Defence, Simon Coveney. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing, City West is full. There's nowhere for refugees from the Ukraine or people seeking asylum here from elsewhere to be accommodated. And uh, the result of that may be the unpalatable option of people being housed in tents at City West and indeed in Gormanston, as we heard earlier on. John Lannan is the CEO of Duras. Uh, a very good morning to you once again again, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Before we get to the tents, or before refugees might end up in tents, uh, there's the immediate problem which, there aren't tents, there's nowhere for people to go, and they may may end up stranded in airports. Good morning, and yes, we're we're certainly at a crisis point now when it comes to accommodation for Ukrainians and international protection applicants, as you said. You know, over a thousand people in City West Hotel. There are only beds there for about 350. So, um, decisive, um, urgent action is needed. A fresh approach is, is needed here. And as part of the Ukraine Civil Society Forum that's got about 65 organizations nationally, we're, we're calling for national lead to be put in place immediately to mm. manage this crisis, to mm. oversee the accommodation, the settlement, the integration of refugees. Should this not have been foreseen? Uh, I mean, it seems like uh, getting the fire brigade to come uh, and put out the fire uh, long after uh, you saw somebody playing with matches. I, I mean, surely we understand from what's available and the amount of people coming into the country uh, that there's going to be a, a problem pending like this. Uh, and it has to be said that it is quite surprising, is it not, given that we were told to anticipate 200,000 people coming here from Ukraine when only about 40,000 have arrived so far? In, indeed. Um, you know, there, there was an initial um, positive response from government in terms of setting up a one-stop shop at Dublin Airport, getting PPS numbers issues to people arriving from Ukraine, etc. But we also knew that there were going to be or would be an accommodation crunch at some point in the future. So, for example, people from Ukraine are living in student accommodations around the country and that's going to run out at the end of August or September. So um, there is a need for, for more planning here. There's a need to look to the mid and longer term. And now as we... Um, no, there, there's a need for decisive action in the short term. You know, the numbers continue to come in from Ukraine. Um, the numbers of people coming here seeking international protection are much higher than what was anticipated, even if we look back to the white paper on ending direct provision, which was mm-hmm. 
published last year. So we we do need to take a, f- a fresh approach here because one of the key things to to remember is that you know we're talking about women, we're talking about children, we're talking about elderly people mm. already traumatized who are stuck in a system now where they could be out on the street with nowhere to rest, yeah, or, or possibly on a camp bed in the airport, or sleeping on a chair in the airport after uh, fleeing from. Uh, the dreadful situation that they left behind them. Absolutely, yes. And, and you know, coming here to seek um, sanctuary, coming mm. here to, to get away from that appalling situation and to get away from wars, whether it's in Ukraine or it's in Syria or it's in Yemen or mm. it's in any other part of the world, and finding then that um, life, life is equally difficult here. And as I said, people are already... Mm traumatized. We we do need to make them safe. And the other thing to remember of course is that, you know, the war in Ukraine isn't going to end anytime soon, unfortunately, mm. as is the case in, in many other parts. Of course, of and we can't so put people on the streets, uh, as you say, John, but can we put them in tents? Uh, I was speaking with Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice earlier on, uh, whose uh, constituency uh, would uh, include Gormanston. Uh, it seems as though there's going to be a tent village set up there. Uh, and the Minister was assuring us that the women and children who live there, if that's what happens, uh, will be safe, that their security will be provided for them because it's in an army base. Uh, would that uh, satisfy you? Well, what I'd have to say is that if we do have to put temporary measures like this in place now, then they need to be temporary and very temporary. And we need to have a plan to be able to move people on from from those situations because that that's quite unsafe for vulnerable people. It's particularly unsafe for children if they're in an environment where there's no oversight of who's coming, who's going. Mm. So we, we need to move away from that. And that, again, is why we're calling for decisive action. There's need for big decisions to, to be made here. We're calling for um, the T-shirt to step in on, on this accommodation crisis, to appoint a nationally to mm. oversee what's what's going on. But also to, to, to now look to the housing agency to, to play a role in mm. this, to mm. drive the development of the medium-term accommodation for refugees. Yeah, and you can't lock people up either. I mean, you have to give them their liberty. You can't have people in tents in Gormanston Army camp with armed soldiers at, at the gates, if you like. You have to allow men come in uh, day and night uh, if uh, they're uh, welcomed by people who are living there but at the same time the women and children who are living there won't be able to lock their doors it's far from ideal it absolutely is far from ideal and we don't want to see those types of solutions but if we do need to do something like that in the, the very immediate term then as I said we've got to have a clear decisive mm. plan for how people move on quickly to a place that is safer and, and a place where they can, can live their, their lives because you know yeah. ch- children um, are, are quite adversely affected by, mm. by having to live in these types of situations but so too anybody who has come from traumatic situations like the war in Ukraine Okay uh, and it's a war that broke out five months ago so I suppose we haven't had that long to plan for it uh, on one hand, uh, but <laughs> I don't think anybody expected, uh, given the numbers that were anticipated to be in this situation five months on. We have to leave it there because our, our time has run out, John, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. John Lannan is uh, the CEO of Duras. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Oh,
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.